Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. On March 9, 1995, a 24-year-old man knocked on the front door of a white, vinyl-sided trailer in a small town 45 minutes from Detroit, Michigan. Jonathan Schmitz had come to the mobile home to question another young man about an unsigned, sexually suggestive note he found taped to the front door of his apartment earlier that morning. When Scott Amador admitted to leaving the note, Schmitz calmly walked to his car and grabbed a 12-gauge shotgun. After a brief struggle, he forced his way into the trailer, firing two shots into the chest of Amador. Just three days earlier, the two men had appeared together on the taping of The Jenny Jones Show. The tragedy was a wake-up call for dozens of daytime talk shows that were trying to outdo each other with provocative and shocking content, often pitting regular people against each other for the entertainment of millions of television viewers. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, the rise of trashy daytime talk shows. In the 1990s, the most violent thing on television wasn't wrestling or NHL hockey. It wasn't even Mike Tyson biting off Evander Holyfield's ear in a fight. It was the Jerry Springer Show. The daytime talk show regularly devolved into wild physical fights between guests that were excitedly cheered on by riled-up audience members. And it wasn't the only one. During the 90s, there were more than two dozen similar daytime talk shows that ranged from provocative to downright trashy. Big names you probably remember, like Jenny Jones, Geraldo Rivera, and Maury Povich, and others you may have forgotten about, like Ricky Lake and Montel Williams. They each grew out of a format that was basically invented by one syndicated show that ran from 1970 to 1996. Donahue show was the model for issue-driven daytime talk shows. Donahue, with his shock of white hair and big glasses, was the first to acknowledge that the people watching daytime talk shows, who were mostly women, wanted more. They weren't just concerned with celebrities or how to look pretty and run a perfect household. During his nearly 26 years on the air, Donahue would shine a light on social and political issues that weren't usually discussed on television, never mind daytime television. Everything from AIDS and reproductive rights to interracial adoption and infidelity. Ordinary people were the guests, talking about real-life issues. It was like the very first dose of reality TV. UC Davis sociology professor Laura Grinstaff wrote a book about 90s daytime talk shows called The Money Shot, 
She says the Phil Donahue show also looked very different. He got rid of the opening monologue. He left his desk. He roamed the audience. He invited audience members to participate, to speak, to ask questions. And his panelists were a mixture of kind of expert politician and ordinary person. This was quite innovative for the time. The groundbreaking show gave a voice to the voiceless. And by 1980, it was attracting 8 million viewers per episode. And you know, when something is that popular, there's going to be imitators. So soon, other issue-driven daytime talk shows hit the airwaves. First, there was Sally Jesse Raphael with her big red glasses. And then, the queen of daytime talk herself, Oprah Winfrey. that synthy flute is like stepping into a time machine. And here's a fun fact. The Oprah theme music was produced by the legendary Quincy Jones. In the 80s, Oprah and Sally Jesse focused mainly on romantic and family relationships, offering viewers advice from expert guests. While another popular daytime host focused more on crime and scandals. Long before Geraldo Rivera was a correspondent for Fox News, he hosted a syndicated daytime talk show, a gig he landed after one of the most famous or infamous TV specials of all time. If you don't know about it, let me explain. 35 years ago, on April 21st, 1986, up to 60 million people in the U.S. and 13 other countries around the world tuned into a live television special hosted by Rivera. It was called The Mystery of Al Capone's Vaults. During the two-hour event, Rivera prepared viewers for the opening of a 54-year-old vault found in the basement of Chicago's Lexington Hotel, which had been the headquarters for famed gangster Al Capone. The hype around the show had been huge. Many were wondering what would be found inside the sealed vault. Maybe cash, guns, or maybe uh, even bobcats. bodies. All right, bobcats. We're going to take the bobcat. We're going to hook it up to the chains. And we're going to pull this wall down. All right, guys, John, okay, Jim, let's hook it up. Now, as these fellows are hooking the chains up to the bobcat, we're going to take our first short commercial break. But don't go away, because when we come back, that wall's coming down. Okay, guys, let's do it. Get it set, get it set. But after pulling down the massive concrete slab covering the vault's opening, Geraldo found an empty gin bottle. Remember, this was live on TV. It was a huge gamble. And unfortunately, it didn't pay off. Well, at least not the way everyone thought it might. There was no secret stash from Al Capone, but the ratings for the show were massive. In fact, at the time, it was the highest rated syndicated special in history. It proved there was an appetite for provocative television and Geraldo Rivera was the man who could deliver it. After the Al Capone special, Geraldo landed his own syndicated daytime talk show that would deliver its own form of controversy. The highlight, or should I say the low light, came in 1988, during an episode of The Geraldo Show called Teen Hate Mongers. It put several white supremacists on the same stage as Black activist Roy Innes, 
who is the national chairman of the Congress of Racial Equality. When a 20-year-old member of a group called the White Aryan Resistance Movement insulted 54-year-old Innes, he walked over to confront him with fists raised. Innes then put his hands around another guest's neck and started to choke him. Soon, audience members joined in, shouting and shoving. Then a chair flew through the air and hit Geraldo right in the face. The show cut to commercial, and when it came back, Geraldo was standing on the stage, mic in hand, with blood running down his face. His nose had been broken by the chair. It became this sort of emblematic moment of how the genre had shifted to a more um, sensational, conflict-ridden... almost raucous, carnivalesque um, sort of aesthetic. And the broken nose epitomized that. And he knew it um, because he not only finished taping the show with his broken nose and blood running down his shirt, but he decided he would turn around and tape two more episodes um, without getting cleaned up. When People Magazine questioned why he would give racists and skinheads the stage to spread hate, Geraldo denied it was confrontainment a mix of confrontation and entertainment. Instead, he said, quote, I saw it as a chance to expose to the American people the lies of racist Nazi thugs. I think it's important for us to maintain the role of people who turn the lights on the cockroaches as they scurry. But the confrontation, it was no accident. The mismatched panel of guests was carefully selected by producers. Roy Innes, the man who did the choking, was well known to have a quick temper. And the audience was packed with skinhead sympathizers. Producers even hired 10 extra security guards for the taping who stood just off camera. Laura Grinstaff says the goal of producers on the 90s daytime talk shows was to make the unpredictable predictable. So the way you make that predictable as possible is to orchestrate a conflict, right? If you've got two people on very different sides of an issue and you put them together, it's very likely to generate conflict. And conflict is about emotion and the the expression of raw emotion on television. And that was their goal. As we have come to understand now, reality TV isn't always real. It's often made up of orchestrated scenarios designed to achieve the most drama and therefore the most ratings. And in 1988, Geraldo was no different. Yes, the chair-throwing incident was shocking, but it was also considered a bonanza by producers. Only two hours after the taping ended, an NBC affiliate TV station in New York was already running a clip of raw footage from the fight. And the next day, tabloid newspapers spread news of the event even further. Geraldo had set a new standard for daytime talk shows— and reaction to the outrageous episode gave permission for other shows to follow suit. By the beginning of the 90s, the floodgates opened and dozens of new daytime talk shows began pouring into North American homes, showing viewers segments of society they had never seen before. In fact, there were so many daytime talk shows that there was even a daily show that recapped their highlights called Talk Soup on E! an entertainment cable channel. 
syndicators loved daytime talk shows because they were both cheap to produce and big money makers. Viewers love them too. James Nadler, professor of media production at Ryerson University, says it's partly because these shows filled an important void in society. If you think about the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, you know, people had bowling leagues. People went to uh, went to church and and synagogue and mosque more. They they had a, a vibrant community. And now you have a world where and it's, it's worse today, but you have a world where people are not even watching television together. They're watching TV in their own rooms. They're 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 living alone increasingly. You had fewer nuclear families, more divorce, um, and more women in the workplace. So so like as the community gets frayed and as the, as society changes, people look for some sort of affirmation that they're part of a community or um, in the case of these shows, they actually look for a place where their voice could be heard. Also, daytime talk shows showed a slice of life that wasn't well represented in mainstream media at the time. You know, like there were a few working class comedies, but it, the shows on TV didn't really, in the 90s, didn't really reflect them. It was things like uh, L.A. Law and Dynasty. It was all about um, the super rich and, and the successful. And, and, and here you are, as Jenny Jones calls it, a, a part of Americana. The new slate of 90s talk shows were filled with conflict and controversy. And while some were definitely more outrageous than others, they all had an element of tawdriness. Even the queen of daytime herself, Oprah, who had been on the air since 1986, had initially dipped her toe into this type of programming. But by the mid-90s, the show was dramatically different after she decided to take the high road. There was one guy who instead decided to go as low as possible, with a show that would eventually turn the entire industry on its head. Before we get into the Jerry Springer show and how it changed the TV landscape, a little bit about the man at the center of the show. Prior to his career in television, Jerry, or as he was known then, Gerald Springer, was a politician in Ohio. At the age of 27, he was elected as a Cincinnati city councillor in 1971. But Springer was forced to resign three years later in 1974 after getting caught up in a sex scandal worthy of his future show. It was revealed at the trial of two other men that Springer had paid by check for sex at a health club. With his wife at his side, a tearful Springer told reporters that he loved public service, but his conscience dictated that he step aside. But not for long. Just a year later, Springer ran again for city councillor and was re-elected despite his earlier transgressions. Then in 1977, he was even elected mayor of Cincinnati. The young, charismatic politician, known for media stunts even then, seemed to be going places. Some actually compared him to JFK. But when Springer ran for Ohio governor and lost, he changed directions and jumped ship from politics for a career in television news. Springer became a popular TV news anchor in Cincinnati through the 1980s. Then in 1991, he got his own syndicated talk show, which initially was a lot like the Phil Donahue show, without the high ratings. 
For its second season, The Jerry Springer Show partnered with NBC and moved from Cincinnati to Chicago in an effort to get more viewers. But Springer's attempt at mimicking the format pioneered by Phil Donahue just wasn't working. Soon staff were told the show was on the verge of being cancelled, which ended up being the nudge Springer and his executive producer Richard Dominic needed to turn things up a notch. They decided since they had nothing to lose, there was no need to play it safe. Instead, Springer embraced his inner Geraldo and ran with it. By 1994, the new and improved Jerry Springer show began its run, featuring episodes with titles like I'm Sleeping With My Brother, Gay Cousins in Love, and Pregnant Gals in a Mime. And James Nadler says viewers ate it up. You know, society was changing and it was it was exciting, it was titillating, it was transgressive, it was pushing that envelope. It was not what their lives were like for the, for the mainstream. Most people have very boring lives, very ordinary lives. Like So it was partly, it was like seeing into that other world. And, you know, it was like, yeah, you used the term freak show. It was like a circus. It was exciting. One of its most controversial shows was an episode called I Married My Horse. During the episode, Jerry spoke to a man who claimed to be in love and married to his horse, which was brought on stage for a disturbing kiss between man and the four-legged creature. Absolutely nothing was off-limits on The Jerry Springer Show, which seemed to revel in its own absurdity. And as the show got more and more shocking, its ratings continued to grow. For a brief time in 1998, The Jerry Springer Show even surpassed Oprah in the ratings to claim the number one spot with a daily audience of nearly 10 million viewers. The show was so popular that Springer even branched out into the at-home video market, selling VHS tapes and later DVDs called Too Hot for TV, which were filled with uncensored outtakes from the show that didn't make it to air. But not everyone loved Springer and his compatriots. Critics called these types of shows teleporn and trash TV. A columnist with Time magazine criticized what he called the ritual gawking at the predicament of strangers. Kurt Anderson said show business had reverted to its sideshow origins. Another Time critic, Richard Zoglin, described daytime talk shows as a surrealist blur of human misery, sideshow voyeurism, and sheer lunacy. But there was no denying it was popular. Eventually, other daytime talk shows that had tried to take the high road had no choice. If they wanted to compete and stay on the air, they too would have to offer viewers a little trash. One of those who decided to take the gloves off and join the daytime fight over who could be the smuttiest was Maury Povich. Povich made a name for himself in the 1980s as host of the equally trashy tabloid TV news show, A Current Affair, which ran weekday evenings and dished out TMZ-like gossip about celebrities and other scandals. Then in 1991, he began hosting his own syndicated daytime talk show, which had started off in the same vein as the Phil Donahue show. But in 1998, producers retooled the program to compete with Jerry Springer and introduced a segment that would become a part of pop culture history. When it comes to four-month-old Donye, Andrew, you are not the father. The Who's Your Daddy episodes on Maury were all pretty much the same. 
following a three-act formula that viewers never seem to get tired of. The first act features a woman with a young child who believes a certain man is the father and tells her side of the story. In Act 2, that man comes on stage and is booed wildly while the couple confront each other. Then, in the final act, Maury reveals the results of a DNA test, which could result in guests dancing, clapping, crying, or running off the stage, depending on the DNA results. Either way, it was incredibly tacky, and to be honest, a little bit sad. And even more problematic when you consider that a majority of the people profiled were Black, contributing to the long-standing stereotype about absent fathers in the Black community. Watching the show, it's hard not to wonder if maybe some of the drama was faked. But Maury Povich and his producers have always maintained that all of his guests and their stories are real. If you're like me, though, you've probably wondered why on earth, then, would anyone agree to be on this type of show, bearing their soul and making themselves vulnerable in front of millions of viewers? James Nadler says there's a couple of reasons. So first of all, it's a nice trip to New York or Los Angeles. You get flown out there. You're put in a nice hotel. You're given a per diem. Um, you're given a lot of attention. People are interested in what in you. That's not a horrible thing. And and like for somebody living in Cincinnati, uh, working as a bartender, you know that's that's kind of a fun weekend. It's something you can tell your friends about when you come back. The other thing, which is interesting, is that especially once the show started to run, people wanted to be on the shows because they wanted to play the game. They they wanted to participate. They wanted they especially if they knew the show. They wanted to be one of the one of the performers. Um, but it sort of speaks to that desire that we all have to a certain extent to be in the spotlight and to be recognized for who we are. And Laura Grinstaff says others went on daytime talk shows because they had been wronged or victimized and they wanted a forum for validation or vindication. Being able to confront them in public was, there was kind of gratification there. I think that would, it would be difficult to reproduce simply in a therapist's office. Is that ethical? I'm not saying it's ethical. Is it desirable? Socially speaking, I'm not saying it's desirable. But this was sometimes a motivation that then producers could capitalize on. Another program that entered the fray in the early 90s was The Jenny Jones Show, hosted by a former stand-up comic who grew up in London, Ontario. When the program premiered in 1991, it was a light, humorous talk show, but ratings were terrible. So the focus switched to harder-edge topics. Stories about murders and rapists were featured, but that was another strikeout. Then a decision was made to shift to episodes about relationships. Things like, my mother slept with my boyfriend, and my daughter wears inappropriate clothing. A format that was already popular on The Ricky Lake Show. Suddenly, The Jenny Jones Show was on the rise. Producers loved to make episodes that included surprises. Like surprise reunions with long-lost family members. But they also liked surprising guests with secret crushes. And it was one of those episodes that led to a shocking tragedy that was a wake-up call for the entire industry. On March 6, 1995, Jonathan Schmitz was invited to appear on a taping of The Jenny Jones Show in Chicago. He was told the episode was about secret crushes and that someone he knew would be there to reveal their true feelings for him. 
24-year-old Schmitz traveled from his home in Orion Township, Michigan, which is 45 minutes from Detroit. When he was brought on the stage, he learned his mysterious admirer was 32-year-old Scott Amador, a friend of a friend who was also on the stage and part of the big reveal. Up until that moment, Schmitz believed the admirer was a woman, but unbeknownst to him, the episode was actually about secret same-sex crushes. Sitting beside Amador, Schmitz put his hands over his face and said, you lied to me when he learned the truth. He was smiling and laughing, but he also looked incredibly uncomfortable as Jenny Jones questioned him. Did you have any idea that he liked you this much? Um, no, 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 I did not. Can you tell us what your status is? I mean, you involved with anybody or? Um, no, but I am uh, definitely a heterosexual, I guess you could say. Before Schmitz had come on stage, Jones pressed Amador to tell the audience about his sexual fantasies about Schmitz, which involved a hammock, strawberries, and whipped cream. Later, when Schmitz was brought on stage and learned that Amador was the crush, the tape was played back while the audience laughed and cheered. Amador and Schmitz flew home together from Chicago to Detroit. Then, three days later, Schmitz found a suggestive note outside his home. He drove to Amador's mobile home to confront him, and when Amador admitted he had in fact left the note, Schmitz went to his car and returned with a newly purchased 12-gauge shotgun. Schmitz opened fire, killing Amador with two shots to the chest. Scott Amador was 32 years old. Schmitz immediately called 911 to turn himself in, and during the call, when he was asked why he shot Amador, he replied, because he played a very effing bad thing on me. He took me on Jenny Jones. When Jonathan Schmitz went on trial in 1996 for first-degree murder, defense lawyers revealed he had a history of mental illness, including chronic depression, and had attempted suicide multiple times. Jenny Jones producers admitted they had not done any type of psychological screening before the taping. If they had, they would have also learned that Schmitz had grown up with an incredibly homophobic father. Jones herself was called to testify at the trial. As defense lawyers tried to take the focus off Schmitz and the homophobia that was tied to his actions and lay some of the blame on the show's ambush tactics. They accused Jones and her staff of misleading Schmitz into believing he was about to meet the woman of his dreams. On the stand, Jones denied the allegations, and she tried to distance herself from the behind-the-scenes decision-making that takes place on the show. She portrayed herself as more of a figurehead who had minimal involvement in show prep. Do you recall having conversation with your producer or associate producer regarding how they obtained guests for this show? No. Can you kindly describe for us what it is you discuss in that briefing? If you can recall. Pertaining to this show. Oh, I have no idea. In the end, Schmitz was found guilty of a lesser charge of second-degree murder and received a sentence of 25 to 30 years. Jurors agreed with the prosecutor who said embarrassment was not an excuse for murder, but acknowledged that Jenny Jones' appearance pushed an already troubled man over the edge. After the verdict, Scott Amador's brother, Frank, told the media that he was disappointed that Schmitz wasn't convicted of the higher charge of first-degree murder. But he agreed that the Jenny Jones show did play a role in the tragedy. 
He said, none of this would have happened if it wasn't for the show's exploitation of homosexuality and people who have difficulty with the tolerance of homosexuality. Three years later, in 1999, Amador's family sued The Jenny Jones Show and Warner Brothers, claiming there was a pattern by its host and producers to deceive and humiliate guests for the sake of ratings. Called to the stand again to testify, Jones maintained that she knew little about the show as it was being put together by producers. When a defense lawyer asked her if it was true that producers go through trailer parks looking for guests for the show, Jones said she wasn't aware of it, but conceded it was possible. The highly publicized lawsuit trial was aired in its entirety on court TV and created a national frenzy revealing damning details, including the fact that producers often ply guests with drinks before taping episodes to calm their nerves and help them open up on TV. Ultimately, the producers of The Jenny Jones Show were found negligent, and the Amador family was awarded $25 million. But the ruling was reversed on appeal, and the Amador family never received a single penny for Scott's death. In 2017, Jonathan Schmitz was released from prison at the age of 47 after serving 22 years behind bars. The murder of Scott Amador wasn't the only time a talk show and its host were held to account for their actions in the 1990s. Oprah Winfrey also found herself at the center of a lawsuit when she was sued by a group of Texas cattlemen who said remarks that she made about beef on her show caused the price of beef to plummet. During the episode called Dangerous Food, Oprah heard from a guest about the possible dangers of getting mad cow disease from eating certain kinds of ground beef. You may remember that at the time, fears of mad cow disease were growing after the death of at least 10 people in Britain who ate contaminated beef. Alarmed by the risk, Oprah asked her audience, now doesn't that concern you all a little bit right there hearing that? It has just stopped me cold from eating another burger. Within two weeks of the declaration, U.S. beef prices began dropping and eventually hit a 10-year low, leading some ranchers to point the finger at Oprah for the drop. Eventually, a group of powerful Texas cattle barons filed a lawsuit against the talk show queen, and the trial took place in Amarillo, Texas, over a six-week period beginning in January 1998. During the trial, Oprah moved her show to the city of Amarillo, turning the area into a circus. When Oprah took the stand to testify, the courtroom was packed with journalists, local residents, and some Oprah supporters, including her friend and poet Maya Angelou. In the end, the jury of eight women and four men decided that Winfrey did not hurt the four Amarillo ranching families and their cattle companies. Leaving the courthouse, Oprah pumped her fist and had these words for reporters and fans gathered outside the courthouse. Hi, everybody. I, what My reaction is that uh, free speech not only lives, it rocks. Oprah not only won the case, she also discovered a future television star. During the trial, her legal team hired Dr. Phil to be her jury consultant, and a friendship between the two led to regular appearances on The Oprah Show and eventually to Dr. Phil's own popular TV program. By 1998, Oprah had an aha moment and refocused her programming on shows about personal growth and spirituality, along with celebrity interviews, pivoting away from trashy topics. 
Laura Grinstaff says after the murder of Scott Amador, other shows also changed directions, including Montel Williams and Geraldo. After the Jenny Jones murder happened, literally every producer I worked with or, or interviewed said something to the effect, there, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, because any show could have been that show at that time because they were all doing the same kind of thing. Um, it just, it kind of just happened to be Jenny Jones. <laughs> and so people were, it did, it shook people up. But you know who didn't shake things up? Jerry Springer. He continued to embrace all things trashy, pushing the limits on decency and in many cases appearing to exploit the show's guests. And almost every episode seemed to end up in a full-on brawl. Producers handpicked guests in orchestrated situations that would very likely end up in a fight. Chairs were thrown, wigs were pulled off, and the more outrageous it got, the more people watched. They looked at it as theater. You know, a sort of talk theater. Um, It was professional wrestling without the ring. You know, it was a form of verbal and sometimes physical, like, gladiatorial combat. You know, it was, it was not the town hall or the lyceum or the salon that, that sort of Oprah or Phil Donahue prioritized. It was, you know, it was sort of the carnival freak show meets the confessional meets the meets professional wrestling. And it it was entertaining. Some people find that entertaining. A lot of people find that entertaining. Remember, this was at a time when mainstream news events were also becoming a new form of entertainment. As Jerry Springer dominated daytime TV, so did highly publicized and televised criminal trials, like the case of William Kennedy, the Menendez brothers, and of course, O.J. Simpson. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. But not everyone found the violence on TV entertaining. There were many that found it disturbing. And after the tragic mass shooting at Columbine High School in 1999, some media pundits and religious groups said enough was enough. Critics asked the question, when the show's main format involves having people take their anger out on each other, is it any wonder that kids are shooting each other at school? A Catholic priest in Chicago even organized protesters who gathered outside NBC Tower in an effort to get the Jerry Springer show off the air. In response, Studios USA, the syndicator for the Jerry Springer show, issued an order to producers, no more fights. But the syndicator had made similar statements in the past, only reneging on them later. So then Chicago City Council waded in on the controversy. An alderman suggested that if the fights on Jerry Springer are real, then arrests should be made. If they are fake, then advertisers and viewers need to know they're being duped. Alderman Edward Burke, an ex-police officer, went so far as to say if the on-camera fights on the Jerry Springer show are staged, then producers should be required to get a city entertainment license, like the WWF would need if it came to the Windy City. Jerry Springer testified at a hearing which was widely publicized by the media, including Court TV, and became a spectacle in its own right. I mean, what what is the purpose of your show? I have said this so many times publicly. I think it's a silly, crazy, outrageous show. I think it's chewing gum. I think the world will be fine with it. The world will be fine without us. Without it, it's just a stupid show at times. And that's all it is. 
Springer appeared not to take things too seriously, often answering questions with sarcastic remarks. When asked if the show glamorized violence, he answered, The people who fight on our show never look glamorous, just the opposite. When asked if the fighting was staged, he said, It looks real to me, but are they really as angry as they appear to be? I can't tell what's in their minds. The Jerry Springer Show survived the city council hearing and continued to produce new episodes until 2018. And not to be outdone, Maury Povich remains on the air in 2021. But other daytime talk shows didn't last. By the end of the 90s, they were dropped one by one as viewers grew tired of the format. It was like the WWE. It was always like, oh, we know there's going to be a fight. It it became very um, predictable. And, And if something becomes predictable, it's no longer that transgressive surprise. But the central concept behind daytime talk shows showing real people involved in orchestrated scenarios that often lead to dramatic TV moments, that hasn't gone anywhere. Reality programs are to the 2000s what daytime talk shows were to the 1990s, right? Just this boom. These are just kind of like daytime talk shows, only there's no studio or studio audience. Reality shows like Real Housewives, Big Brother and Survivor have taken over from 90s daytime talk shows giving us a peek inside other people's lives, even if it is augmented reality. Thanks for listening to this look back at 90s daytime talk shows. I'd love to know what show was your guilty pleasure. Send me a message on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History or on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. You can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's where you can also let me know which topics you'd like us to cover. Daytime talk shows were suggested by several listeners, including Rob, Megan, Philip, and Kate. Thanks to them for the great idea. Thanks also to my guests for this episode, Professors Laura Grinstaff and James Nadler. I'll put info about Laura's book, The Money Shot, in the show notes. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.